Chapter 20 of The Star Chamber, An Historical Romance, Volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Star Chamber, Volume 1, by William Harrison Ainsworth. Chapter 20, King James I. Meantime, the royal cavalcade came slowly up the avenue. It was very numerous, and all the more brilliant in appearance, since it comprised nearly as many high-born dames as nobles. Amongst the distinguished foreigners who with their attendants swelled the party were the Venetian leisure ambassador Justiniano and the Marquis de Tremoille from the family de Ursins, ambassador from France. These exalted personages rode close behind the king, and one or the other of them was constantly engaged in conversation with him. Justiniano had one of those dark, grave, handsome countenances familiarized to us by the portraits of Titian and Tintoretto, and even the king's jests failed in making him smile. He was apparelled entirely in black velvet, with a cloak bordered with the costly fur of the black fox. All his followers were similarly attired. The somber Venetian presented a striking contrast to his vivacious companion, the gay and graceful de Tremolier, who glittered in white satin, embroidered with leaves of silver, while the same color and the same ornaments were adopted by his retinue. No order of precedence was observed by the court nobles. Each rode as he listed. Prince Charles was absent, and so was the supreme favorite Buckingham, but their places were supplied by some of the chief personages of the realm, including the Earls of Arundel, Pembroke, and Montgomery, the Marquis of Hamilton, and the Lords Haddington, Fenton, and Doncaster. Intermingled with the nobles, the courtiers of lesser rank, and the ambassador's followers, were the ladies, most of whom claimed attention from personal charms, rich attire, and the grace and skill with which they managed their horses. Perhaps the most beautiful amongst them was the young Countess of Exeter, whose magnificent black eyes did great execution. The lovely Countess was mounted on a fiery Spanish barb, given to her by de Gondomar. Forced into a union with a gouty and decrepit old husband, the Countess of Exeter might have pleaded this circumstance in extenuation of some of her follies, it was undoubtedly an argument employed by her admirers who, in endeavoring to shake her fidelity to her lord, told her it was an infamy that she should be sacrificed to such an old dotard as he. Whether these arguments prevailed in more cases than one we shall not inquire too nicely, but, if court scandal may be relied on, they did, Buckingham and de Gondomar being both reputed to have been her lovers. The last, however, in the list, and the one who appeared to be most passionately enamored of the beautiful countess, and to receive the largest share of her regard, was Lord Roos. And as this culpable attachment and its consequences connect themselves intimately with our history, we have been obliged to advert to them thus particularly. Lord Roos was a near relative of the Earl of Exeter, and although the infirm and gouty old peer had been excessively jealous of his lovely young wife on former occasions, when she had appeared to trifle with his honor, he seemed perfectly easy and unsuspicious now, though there was infinitely more cause for distrust. Possibly he had too much reliance on Lord Roos's good feelings and principles to suspect him. Very different was Lady Roos's conduct. This unhappy lady, whom we have already mentioned as the daughter of Sir Thomas Lake, Secretary of State, had the misfortune to be sincerely attached to her handsome but profligate husband, whose neglect and frequent irregularities she had pardoned, until the utter estrangement occasioned by his passion for the Countess of Exeter filled her with such trouble that, overpowered at length by anguish, she complained to her mother Lady Lake, an ambitious and imperious woman whose vanity had prompted her to bring about this unfortunate match. 
Expressing the greatest indignation at the treatment her daughter had experienced, Lady Lake counselled her to resent it, undertaking herself to open the eyes of the injured Earl of Exeter to his wife's infidelity. But she was dissuaded from her purpose by Sir Thomas Lake. Though generally governed by his wife, Sir Thomas succeeded, in this instance, in overruling her design of proceeding at once to extremities with the guilty pair, recommending that, in the first instance, Lord Roos should be strongly remonstrated with by Lady Lake and her daughter, when perhaps his fears might be aroused, if his sense of duty could not be awakened. This final appeal had not yet been made, but an interview had taken place between Lady Roos and her husband, at which, with many passionate entreaties, she had implored him to shake off the thraldom in which he had bound himself, and to return to her when all should be forgiven and forgotten, but without effect. Thus matters stood at present. As we have seen, though the Countess of Exeter formed one of the chief ornaments of the hawking party, Lord Roos had not joined it, his absence being occasioned by a summons from the Conde de Gondomar, with some of whose political intrigues he was secretly mixed up. Whether the Countess missed him or not, we pretend not to say. All we are able to declare is, she was in high spirits, and seemed in no mood to check the advances of other aspirants to her favor. Her beautiful and expressive features beamed with constant smiles, and her lustrous black eyes seemed to create a flame wherever their beams alighted. But we must quit this enchantress and her spells, and proceed with the description of the royal party. In the rear of those on horseback walked the falconers, in liveries of green cloth, with bugles hanging from the shoulder, each man having a hawk upon his fist, completely tired in its hood, bells, varvels, and jesses. At the heels of the falconers, and accompanied by a throng of varlets, in russet jerkins carrying staves, came two packs of hounds, one used for what was termed, in the language of falconry, the flight at the river, these were all water spaniels, and the other for the flight at the field. Nice music they made, in spite of the efforts of the varlets, in russet, to keep them quiet. Hawking in those days was what shooting is in the present, fowling pieces being scarcely used, if at all. Thus the varieties of the hawk tribe were not merely employed in the capture of pheasants, partridges, grouse, rails, quails, and other game, besides waterfowl, but in the chase of hares, and in all of these pursuits the falconers were assisted by dogs. Game, of course, could only be killed at particular seasons of the year, and wild geese, wild ducks, woodcocks, and snipes in the winter, but spring and summer pastime was afforded by the crane, the bustard, the heron, the rook, and the kite, while, at the same periods, some of the smaller description of waterfowl offered excellent sport on lake or river. A striking and picturesque sight that cavalcade presented, with its nodding plumes of many colors, its glittering silks and velvets, its proud array of horsemen, and its still prouder array of lovely women, whose personal graces and charms baffle description, while they invite it. Pleasant were the sounds that accompanied the progress of the train, the jocund laugh, the musical voices of women, the jingling of bridles, the snorting and trampling of steeds, the baying of hounds, the shouts of the varlets, and the winding of horns. But having, as yet, omitted the principal figure, we must hasten to describe him by whom the party was headed. The king, then, was mounted on a superb milk-white steed, with wide-flowing mane and tail, and of the easiest and gentlest pace. Its color was set off by its red chanfron, its nodding crest of red feathers, its broad poitrinal with red tassels, and its saddle with red housings. Though devoted to the chase, as we have shown, James was but an indifferent horseman, and his safety in the saddle was assured by such high bolstered bows in front and at the back, 
that it seemed next to impossible he could be shaken out of them. Yet, in spite of all these precautions, accidents had befallen him. On one occasion, Sir Simmons Dews relates that he was thrown headlong into a pond, and on another we learn from a different source that he was cast over his horse's head into the new river, and narrowly escaped drowning, his boots alone being visible above the ice covering the stream. Moreover, the monarch's attire was excessively stiff and cumbrous, and this, while it added to the natural ungainliness of his person, prevented all freedom of movement, especially on horseback. His doublet, which on the present occasion was of green velvet, considerably frayed, for he was by no means particular about the newness of his apparel, was padded and quilted so as to be dagger-proof, and his hose were stuffed in the same manner, and preposterously large about the hips. Then his ruff was triple-banded and so stiffly starched that his head was fixed immovably amidst its plaits. Though not handsome, James's features were thoughtful and intelligent, with a gleam of cunning in the eye, and an expression of sarcasm about the mouth, and that contained the type of the peculiar physiognomy that distinguished all his unfortunate line. His beard was of a yellowish brown, and scantily covered his chin, and his thin mustaches were of a yet lighter hue. His hair was beginning to turn gray, but his complexion was ruddy and hale, proving that, but for his constant ebriety and indulgence in the pleasures of the table, he might have attained a good old age, if, indeed, his life was not unfairly abridged. His large eyes were forever rolling about, and his tongue was too big for his mouth, causing him to splutter in utterance, besides giving him a disagreeable appearance when eating, while his legs were so weak that he required support in walking. Notwithstanding these defects, and his general coarseness of manner, James was not without dignity, and could, when he chose, assume a right royal air and deportment but these occasions were rare. As is well known, his pedantry and his pretensions to superior wisdom and discrimination procured him the title of the Scottish Solomon. His general character will be more fully developed as we proceed, and we shall show the perfidy and dissimulation which he practiced in carrying out his schemes, and tried to soften down under the plausible appellation of Kingcraft. James was never seen to greater advantage than on occasions like the present his hearty enjoyment of the sport he was engaged in, his familiarity with all around him, even with the meanest varlets by whom he was attended, and for whom he had generally some droll nickname, his complete abandonment of all the etiquette which either he or his master of the ceremonies observed elsewhere, his good-tempered vanity and his boasting about his skill as a woodsman, all these things created an impression in his favor, which was not diminished in those who were not brought much into contact with him in other ways. When hunting or hawking, James was nothing more than a hardy country gentleman engaged in the like sports. The cavalcade came leisurely on, for the king proceeded no faster than would allow the falconers to keep easily up with those on horseback. He was in high good humor, and laughed and jested sometimes with one ambassador, sometimes with the other, and having finished a learned discussion on the manner of fleeing a hawk at the river and on the field, as taught by the great French authorities Martin, Malopin, and Emma Cassian, with the Marquis de Tremoillier, had just begun a similar conversation with Justiano as to the Italian mode of manning, hooding, and reclaiming a falcon, as practiced by Messer Francesco Sforzino Vincentino, when he caught sight of the Conde de Gondomar, standing where he left him at the side of the avenue, on which he came to a sudden halt, and the whole cavalcade stopped at the same time. Salud, Conde Magnifico, exclaimed King James, as the Spaniard advanced to make his obeisance to him. How is it that we find you standing under the shade of the tree, friendly to the vine? Amictoe vitibus ulmi, as Ovid hath it? 
Is it that yon blooming Chloe? He continued, leering significantly at Gillian. Hath more attraction for you than our court dames? Troth, the queen is not ill-favored, but ye have lost a good day's sport, Count, for by either losses which we shall not particularize. We have had a noble flight at the heron, and another just as good after the bustard. God santy! The run the lang-legged loon gave us. Lady Exeter, on her bra Spanish barb, we ken whose gift it is, was the only one able to keep with us, and it was her ladyship's ain peregrine falcon that checked the fleeing carl at last. By our faith the countess understands the gentle science wheel. She cared not to soil her dainty gloves by rewarding her hawk with a sapa, as his excellency Justiano would term it, of the bustard's heart, blood, and brains. But what ha ye gotten wi ye? he added, for the first time noticing Jocelyn. A young gentleman in whom I am much interested, and whom I would crave permission to present to your majesty, replied de Gondomar. Saul of our body, Count, the permission is readily granted, replied James, evidently much pleased with the young man's appearance. Ye shall bring him to us in the privy chamber before we gang to supper, and moreover ye shall have full license to advance what you please in his behoof. He is a wheel-grown, wheel-favored laddie, almost as much say as our ain dear dog Steenie, but we wad say to him, in the words of the Roman bard, O famose purer nimium ne crede calori. Good parts are better than good looks, not that the latter are to be undervalued, but both should exist in the same person. We shall soon discover whether the young man hath been weel nurtured, and if all correspond, we shall not refuse him the light of our countenance. I tender your majesty thanks for the favor you have conferred upon him, replied de Gondomar. "'But ye have not yet told us the youth's name, Count,' said the king. "'Your majesty, I trust, will not think I make a mystery where none is needed, "'if I say that my protege claims your grace's permission to preserve, "'for the moment, his incognito,' de Gondomar replied. "'When I present him, of course, his name will be declared.' "'Be it as you will, Count,' James replied. "'We can full wheel ye had good reason for a ye do. "'Fail not in your attendance on us at the time appointed.' As de Gondomar, with a profound obeisance, drew back, the king put his steed in motion. General attention having been thus called to Jocelyn, all eyes were turned towards him. His appearance and attire were criticized, and much speculation ensued as to what could be the Spanish ambassador's motive for undertaking the presentation. Meanwhile, Lord Roos had taken advantage of the brief halt of the hunting party to approach the Countess of Exeter, and pointing out Gillian to her, inquired in a low tone, and in a few words, to which, however his looks imparted significance, whether she would take the pretty damsel into her service as tire-woman or handmaiden. The countess seemed surprised at the request, and after glancing at the beauty of Tottenham, was about to refuse it when Lord Roos urged in a whisper, "'Tis for de Gondomar I ask the favor." "'In that case I readily assent,' the countess replied. "'I will go speak to the damsel at once, if you desire it. How pretty she is!' No wonder his inflammable excellency should be smitten by her. And detaching her barb as she spoke from the cavalcade, she moved towards Gillian, accompanied by Lord Roos. The pretty damsel was covered with fresh confusion at the great lady's approach, and was indeed so greatly alarmed that she might have taken to her heels if she had been on the ground, and not on the pillion behind her grandsire. "'Be not abashed, my pretty maiden,' the countess said, in a kind and encouraging tone. "'There is nothing to be afraid of.' Aware that I am in want of a damsel like yourself, to tire my hair and attend upon me, Lord Roos has drawn my attention to you. 
and if I may trust to appearances, as I think I may, she added, with a very flattering and persuasive smile, in your case, you are the very person to suit me, provided you are willing to enter my service. I am the Countess of Exeter. A Countess! exclaimed Gillian. Do you hear that, grandsire? The beautiful lady is a Countess. What an honor it would be to serve her. It might be, the old man replied with hesitation, and in a whisper, yet I do not exactly like the manner of it. "'Don't accept the offer, Gillian. Don't go,' said Dick Taverner, whose breast was full of uneasiness. "'Your answer, my pretty maiden?' the Countess said with a winning smile. "'I am much beholden to you, my lady,' Gillian replied, "'and it will delight me to serve you as you propose, that is, if I have my grandsire's consent to it. "'And the good man, I am sure, has your welfare too much at heart to withhold it,' the Countess replied. "'But follow me to the palace, and we will confer further upon the matter.' Inquire for the Countess of Exeter's apartments, and with another gracious smile she rejoined the cavalcade, leaving Lord Roos behind. He thanked her with a look for her complacence. "'Oh, Gillian, I am sure ill will come of this,' Dick Taverner exclaimed. "'Wherefore should it?' she rejoined, almost beside herself with delight at the brilliant prospect suddenly opened before her. "'My fortune is made.' "'You are right, my pretty damsel, it is,' Lord Roos remarked. "'Fail not to do as the Countess has directed you, and I will answer for the rest.' "'You hear what the kind young nobleman says, grandsire?' Gillian whispered in his ear. "'You cannot doubt his assurance?' "'I hear it all,' old Greenford replied. "'But I know not what to think. I suppose we must go to the palace.' "'To be sure we must,' Gillian cried. "'I will go there alone if you will not go with me.' Satisfied with what he had heard, Lord Roos moved away, nodding approval at Gillian. The cavalcade, as we have said, was once more in motion, but before it had proceeded far, it was again most unexpectedly brought to a halt. Suddenly stepping from behind a large tree which had concealed him from view, a man in military habiliments, with grizzled hair and beard, and an exceedingly resolute and stern cast of countenance, planted himself directly in the monarch's path, and extending his hand towards him, exclaimed in a loud voice, "'Stand, O King!' "'Who art thou, fellow, and what wouldst thou?' demanded James, who had checked his horse with such suddenness as almost to throw himself out of his high-holstered saddle. "'I have a message to deliver to thee from heaven,' replied Hugh Calvary. "'Aha!' exclaimed James, recovering in some degree, for he thought he had a madman to deal with. "'What may thy message be?' And willing to gain a character for courage, though it was wholly foreign to his nature, he motioned those around him to keep back. "'Thy message, fellow,' he repeated. "'Hear, then, what heaven saith to thee,' the Puritan replied. "'Have I not brought thee out of a land of famine into a land of plenty? "'Thou oughtest, therefore, to have judged my people righteously. "'But thou hast perverted justice, and not relieved the oppressed. "'Therefore, unless thou repent, I will rend thy kingdom from thee, "'and from thy posterity after thee. "'Thus saith the Lord, whose messenger I am.'" End of chapter 20